In the summer of 1978, San Francisco's District 5 city supervisor, Harvey Milk, was in the midst of organizing events for Gay Freedom Day when he received an anonymous postcard. It read, you get the first bullet the minute you stand at the microphone. As the first openly gay man to hold an elected position in the US, Milk had long believed he'd be assassinated in office, but he refused to let this postcard get to him. It was just one more in a long series of death threats. On June 25, 1978, hundreds of thousands of LGBTQ people and their allies gathered in San Francisco. Their celebration was especially important in light of the pending Proposition 6, which would ban gay men, lesbians, bisexual people, and their supporters from teaching in public schools. After the parade, Milk spoke at City Hall. Wearing a lei and a white t-shirt that read, I'll never go back, he said, My name is Harvey Milk, and I want to recruit you. I want to recruit you for the right to preserve your democracy. In the Declaration of Independence, it is written, All men are created equal, and they are endowed with certain inalienable rights. That's what America is. Love it or leave it. He spoke clearly and confidently. No one in the crowd suspected that his aides were debating the best route to the nearest hospital. They sat on edge, ready to spring into action and provide life-saving first aid if necessary. But the would-be assassin never showed. After the successful rally, Milk felt energized. He began to plan for the next year's Gay Freedom Day celebration, which would be bigger and better and would feature a march in Washington, D.C. Unfortunately, Milk's plans would never come to fruition. Instead, in just five months, he would become a martyr. One death can change the world. At least, that's what assassins believe. Welcome to Assassinations, a ParCast original. Every Monday, we examine the famous assassins of history and the men and women who were assassinated. I'm your host, Bill Thomas. And I'm your host, Kate Leonard. This is our first episode on San Francisco City Supervisor Harvey Milk. This week, we'll explore how Milk became the first openly gay man to ever be elected to a major political office and often collaborated and clashed with fellow city supervisor Dan White. After Milk pressured Mayor George Moscone to replace White with a more liberal representative, White snuck into City Hall with a loaded gun and killed both Moscone and Milk. Next week, we'll look at the fallout of Milk's death and Dan White's groundbreaking murder trial. We'll also discuss Milk's legacy and how the world might be different if he'd never been assassinated. At ParCast, we're grateful to you, our listeners. You allow us to do what we love. Let us know how we're doing. Reach out on Facebook and Instagram at ParCast and Twitter at ParCast Network. And if you enjoyed today's episode, the best way to help is to leave a five-star review wherever you're listening. It really does help. We also now have merchandise. Head to parcast.com merch for more information.
Jim Jones of the People's Temple had long been a fixture in San Francisco's Democratic community. He'd rubbed elbows with Mayor George Moscone and City Supervisor Harvey Milk. No one ever anticipated that on November 18, 1978, he'd lead his followers in a mass suicide. For weeks after she heard of Jones's death, Mayor Moscone's secretary, Sierra Copertini, was jumpy, on edge. Her apprehension grew around 11 a.m. on November 27th, when a former city supervisor wheedled his way into Moscone's office and loudly argued with him inside. Then, Copertini heard four staccato pops. She forced herself to calm down. Her mind was playing tricks on her. It was just her anxiety after the tragedy with Jim Jones. To reassure herself, Copertini glanced out the window to confirm that a car had backfired. Minutes later, Copertini admitted a city official into the mayor's office and discovered that her initial instincts had been correct. Former city supervisor Dan White had murdered the mayor and he wasn't finished killing. Dan White was born on September 2nd, 1946 and grew up in San Francisco, California. He was the son of a firefighter in a conservative blue-collar family. His Irish Catholic roots were an important part of the cultural identity he carried into adulthood. White attended a parochial school where he was instilled with the church's values, especially regarding sexuality. He earned good grades and was a successful athlete. He seemed like a compassionate, intelligent young man. He was going places. White served a single year in the Vietnam War. His brief stint in service helped shape his attitudes toward social justice. The brave black soldiers who served alongside him instilled in him progressive attitudes toward race. He also began to reevaluate some of his long-held negative attitudes about LGBTQ people, thanks to a few servicemen White discovered to be gay. White was in his early 20s when he returned to the U.S. and joined the San Francisco police force. He found that he wasn't the only person who had changed during the war. San Francisco was growing more diverse by the day. World War II marked the beginning of the city's transformation into a gay haven. As the military discharged thousands of gay and suspected gay soldiers, newly outed men were processed through the Golden City. Then, faced with the decision to return home in shame or build a new anonymous life in the city, many stayed in San Francisco. Beginning in the 1950s, San Francisco became a mecca for progressive groups like the Beatniks and later the Hippies. In 1961, Jose Saria, an openly gay drag queen, became the first openly gay person to run for and lose a public office when he sought a city supervisor position. By the 1970s, the city's counterculture thrived and LGBTQ communities sprung up in neighborhoods like the historic Castro District. Like Dan White, most San Francisco cops were Irish Catholics. And in the late 1960s and early 70s, it was sadly common for police officers to brutalize gay and black civilians. 
Institutional violence against minorities was common throughout the United States, but San Francisco in particular was famous for its regressive, brutal policing. One day, while White was on duty, he saw another white officer handcuff a black prisoner and then beat the man mercilessly. White intervened, saving the defenseless inmate. After the incident, White filed a report in which he named the offending officer. For crossing the thin blue line, White was shunned by his fellow police officers. He soon felt he had no choice but to quit the force in his late 20s. In 1974, 28-year-old White followed in his father's footsteps to become a firefighter. He was a natural fit and thrived during his training period, even as his classmates struggled. Racist leaders at the fire station had a long-standing practice of accepting black students into the training program, then flunking them out. This allowed the fire department to technically comply with anti-discrimination laws while still keeping the San Francisco Fire Department a primarily whites-only organization. But White was strongly opposed to racism and once said, the sooner we get down to eliminating discrimination against any people, the better we'll all be. Those words would later prove hypocritical, but during his training, White personally tutored three black firefighter trainees who were in danger of failing the onboarding program. He also put together a petition and encouraged other firefighters to sign and advocate for them. Ultimately, the three firefighters he helped all passed their exams and White graduated at the top of his class. In 1977, 30-year-old White was called to a burning apartment building and learned that a woman and her baby were trapped on the seventh floor. Braving the inferno, White rescued both from the flames. The papers reported on his valor. A politically active police officer friend introduced the suddenly famous White to consultant Ray Sloan, who was tasked with nominating the next Democratic District 8 city supervisor candidate. Sloan, a gay man, was soon taken with the hero firefighter. He didn't hide his sexual orientation and White didn't treat it as a big deal. In an interview, Sloan explained, being gay was never discussed even though he had to have known about it. It just wasn't an issue. It's hard to say why White chose to get into politics, but he was beloved by his firefighter and former police department colleagues who pushed him to run. He supported progressive causes like affirmative action, gun control, and economic policies friendly to blue-collar workers and unions. But his home in District 8, was situated in one of San Francisco's most crime-ridden neighborhoods. And as a former cop, White ran on a platform of law and order. White repeatedly called to restore San Francisco to a more traditional homogenous culture. On the trail, he said, I'm not going to be forced out of San Francisco by splinter groups of radicals, social deviates, and incorrigibles. These statements didn't go over well with San Francisco's diverse population. But White didn't need to win over the entire city. He just needed to convince the voters of District 8 to support him. And because his home district was populated primarily by conservative religious voters like himself, White was wildly popular with his base. On November 3, 1977, White won his seat as District 8 city supervisor in a landslide. 
At the age of 31, he was the youngest person to ever win the position. His wasn't the only record broken. Other districts elected the board's first black woman, the first Chinese-American supervisor, and the first openly gay man. Within days of his victory, Dan White soon found himself invited to a series of televised debates and roundtable conversations. White was a prominent face of conservative to moderate San Francisco politics, and he made for a natural rival to another newly elected supervisor who came from the far left side of the aisle. This was how White met the man he would eventually kill, city supervisor Harvey Milk. Up next, we'll explore the life of Harvey Milk. Now, back to the story. Earlier, we discussed the life of Dan White, a 31-year-old conservative-leaning Democrat who won a San Francisco city supervisor position in 1977. White's progressive stances on racial equality and labor were offset by his traditional attitudes toward gay rights. Another candidate, openly gay liberal Democrat Harvey Milk, won a seat in District 5 in the same election. Before we discuss Milk's political career, let's take a look back at his early life. Harvey Milk was born on May 22, 1930, in Woodmere, New York. His family was Jewish, but not particularly devout. As a child, Harvey loved to be the center of attention and was a talkative, jubilant boy. For all his boisterousness, he was guarded with his brother and father, never letting anyone get to know him too deeply. By the time he was a teenager, Milk had developed a love of theater, especially the opera. On weekends, he'd travel into New York City to see every show he could afford. His mother, Minnie, quickly grew concerned by her son's interest in theater. She knew what was said about men who loved the stage. And the common attitudes of the time suggested to Minnie that gay men were dangerous. One day, Minnie sat down with her son to warn him of the risks many believed were posed by predatory gay men. She gave Milk a speech based on the stereotypes and rumors she'd heard, warning him that gay men would do terrible, unthinkable things to sweet young boys like him. Except Milk already knew that he was different from other boys. While his friends flirted with pretty girls, Harvey developed crushes on the men he saw on stage. And when Minnie voiced her opinion of gay men, Milk understood that he could never be honest with his mother about his sexual orientation. As he matured, Milk's trips to the city became about more than just the opera. He learned where the best gay pickup spots were and the secret codes that closeted men used to communicate. These trips were risky, as gay men were often victims of violence and police harassment. Milk wasn't only afraid of getting beaten up or arrested, he also dreaded having to explain such an event to his mother. When he was 21 in 1951, Milk earned a degree from the New York State College for Teachers. Three months later, he enrolled with the Navy where he served with distinction in the Korean War. Less than a year after his enlistment, Milk was admitted into officer's training. By the time he'd achieved the rank of chief petty officer, he'd also developed a reputation for throwing wild parties when his ship docked. And often, Milk's male guests didn't go home when the party was over. 
One day in 1955, Milk's superior officer summoned him for questioning. As he entered the room, Milk could feel his heart pounding in his ears. He fielded questions about his sexual orientation while one thought ran through his mind. What would his mother think? In August 1955, 25-year-old Milk's military career ended. He'd later report that he was dishonorably discharged for being gay, though the official records list him as honorably discharged. Back in civilian life, Milk was careful to avoid exposure. He lived in New York, but stayed away from gay bars and other neighborhoods with the wrong reputation. He was discreet when he dated, those boyfriends lucky enough to meet Milk's parents were always introduced as roommates. On November 27, 1962, Milk's mother died of a heart attack. While he planned her funeral, he frequently clashed with his father and brothers. A rift grew between Milk and his family that would never be repaired in his lifetime. That same year, 32-year-old Harvey Milk began to date Craig Rodwell, Rodwell had already been arrested once before, but not charged with anything specific. These sorts of baseless arrests were a common tactic police used to harass gay men. In the fall of 1964, Rodwell visited a gay neighborhood called Jacob Reese Park. He was unfortunate enough to get caught up in a periodic police gay raid. As the police arrested dozens of gay men, Rodwell fought back. He shouted, this is harassment of homosexuals. In return, he was charged with inciting a riot and convicted of indecent exposure. From jail, Rodwell wasn't permitted to use the phone. During his three-day sentence, Milk wondered and worried about his boyfriend's abrupt disappearance. By the time Rodwell finally returned home, their relationship was effectively over. Milk was too frightened of the exposure Rodwell's arrest might bring. They finally split after weeks of coldness and emotional distance. In 1968, Milk's new boyfriend, Jack McKinley, received a job offer in San Francisco, and the couple moved together. They split soon after the relocation, but Milk fell for the city and chose not to return to New York. Unemployed, Milk began looking at apartments on the inexpensive Castro Street, which was famous nationwide for its large and vibrant gay community. For the first time in his life, Milk flirted with the idea of coming out. Estranged from most of his family, he no longer feared what they would think, and a gay-friendly community would shield him from the worst discrimination and harassment. As Milk began to live more openly, he felt like a great weight had been lifted from his shoulders. He also noticed how his friends and family were forced to reevaluate their own negative stereotypes about gay men once they knew he was one. This planted the seed of an idea in Milk's mind. Coming out wasn't just a personal choice, it was a political action. Increased visibility was a key element of the gay rights movement. The polls at the time backed up Milk's theory. Randy Schultz wrote in his book, The Mayor of Castro Street, voters who knew gays personally were twice as likely to support gay rights than those who said they had never known a homosexual. But Milk wasn't ready to jump straight into politics. Instead, he'd always liked the romanticism of owning his own business. 
He knew nothing about photography, but he opened a camera store at 575 Castro Street in 1973, living in the apartment above his shop. His photography business almost failed to take off. He was required to pay a series of government fees to open a business, but lacked the startup funds. While he haggled with city officials, he complained to his friends about the laws that failed to serve the needs of the public. That fall, Milk was working his shift at Castro Cameras when a young school teacher entered the store. She apologetically admitted she wasn't there to buy anything. She didn't have the money for it. In fact, the school district was so low on funds, she didn't even have a projector in her classroom. She wondered if Milk would lend her one just long enough to teach her class. The request stunned Milk. How could San Francisco, a growing wealthy city, fail to finance its schools? Someone needed to change things. Someone needed to run for office. And that someone would be Harvey Milk. Milk had lived in the Castro district less than a year when he decided to run for a position as city supervisor in 1973. At 42 years old, he had no political experience and no name recognition. He was a long shot to win. But Milk thrived on the campaign trail. The man who'd always loved attention flourished as the spotlight fell on him. He incorporated a flair of theatricality into his campaign, cracking jokes and planning dramatic appearances. Most notably, Milk publicly embraced his identity as a gay man. He courted gay voters, claiming that even the most liberal straight politicians would never prioritize LGBTQ issues. His frequent refrain was, you're never given power, you have to take it. Milk finished the race in 10th place. While he grappled with his failure, another politician advised Milk that he needed more political experience and visibility. The official said, you don't get to dance unless you put up the chairs and I've never seen you put up the chairs. Milk took the advice to heart. When he had learned of a defunct local merchants organization called Castro Village Association, Milk revived the group, appointing himself president. In 1974, Harvey Milk planned the first ever Castro Street Fair. Vendors and artists packed the streets to encourage tourism in the neighborhood. The event was the first of what would soon become an annual tradition. A year later, Milk had another shot to run for the Board of Supervisors. Once again, he lost the race, but only narrowly. Importantly, Milk made a friend in George Moscone, a gay rights-friendly Democrat running for mayor. When Moscone's finish was close enough to trigger a runoff election, Milk converted his camera shop into a campaign office for Moscone and secured the gay vote that helped carry Moscone to victory on December 11, 1975. In return, Moscone personally appointed 45-year-old Milk as commissioner on the San Francisco Board of Permit Appeals. Milk was the first openly gay city commissioner in U.S. history, but only held the position for five weeks before he resigned to participate in a runoff election for an unexpectedly vacant state assembly seat. Once again, Milk lost. But by 1977, 47-year-old Milk was more experienced in politics, battle-hardened by his three failed campaigns. He knew how to wheel and deal with the political elite. 
Milk's final campaign coincided with the rise of a new voice on the conservative right, Anita Bryant. Bryant was a singer and corporate spokesperson with roots in the Miss America beauty pageant. Beginning in the late 1970s, Bryant became the face of the Save Our Children campaign. Save Our Children, through Bryant, argued that gay men were a threat to families, and especially to children. She once infamously quipped, homosexuals cannot reproduce, so they must recruit. Harvey loved to make a political point through a joke, so he began to open all his speeches with the phrase, my name is Harvey Milk, and I'm here to recruit you. In 1977, the San Francisco Teamsters Union went on strike. One day, a representative approached Milk at Castro Camera. He heard that Milk held sway in the gay community, and the Teamsters wanted him to moderate between the union and gay bar owners on Castro Street. The Teamsters Union was embroiled in a dispute with beer distributors and encouraged San Francisco's bar owners to boycott the offending brands. All of the major watering holes had agreed to join the boycott, except the gay bars on Castro Street. Milk negotiated a deal in which bar owners joined the boycott in exchange for the union's agreement to hire more gay drivers. Soon, pollsters were shocked to see that an openly gay man carried the support of the traditionally masculine Teamsters Union. Milk campaigned not only for himself, but for gay and lesbian men and women everywhere. In nearly every speech he gave, he encouraged closeted LGBTQ people all over the country to come out. Only when the average straight American knew that they had an LGBTQ friend, neighbor, child, or sibling, would the gay rights movement go mainstream. But as Melt grew more popular, he also began to receive anonymous death threats in the mail. After months of campaigning, Election Day on November 8, 1977, found Milk anxious and uneasy. After three electoral defeats, the 47-year-old feared that he may never secure the city supervisor seat. When Milk heard the official results, he found that his fears had been unfounded. Milk won handily. He was the first openly gay man to ever be elected to a major public office in the United States. As Harvey gave his victory speech, a lone voice from the crowd shouted, Harvey for mayor. Applause erupted. It finally seemed like an openly gay man could achieve anything. As much as he may have wanted to celebrate his victory, Milk knew he was in a precarious position. While many San Franciscans were progressive, there were just as many social conservatives who would never accept a gay councilman. Milk feared that he'd be assassinated in office. His friends tried to dissuade his dark thoughts. They jokingly remind Milk that his position was, ultimately, a minor seat, unlikely to draw an assassin's attention. One friend even said, hey, you're not Martin Luther King. You're not important enough. But Milk couldn't let go of his fears. He'd already been receiving death threats for months, and now he was even more visible. On November 18th, 10 days after his electoral victory, Milk visited his lawyer. The 47-year-old wanted to get his affairs in order in case he was assassinated in office. During this visit, Milk set up a tape recorder and voiced his fears and plans. 
he recorded several tapes with instructions that they were only to be played in the event of his murder. In one recording, he said, knowing that I could be assassinated at any moment or any time, I feel it's important that some people know my thoughts. If a bullet should enter my brain, let that bullet destroy every closet door in the country. Milk still hadn't taken his oath of office, and he already feared that his sexual orientation would make him a target. Sadly, his preparations would soon prove all too prescient. Coming up next, Harvey Milk is assassinated. Now, back to the story. On November 8, 1977, 47-year-old Harvey Milk won a seat on San Francisco's Board of City Supervisors. He and another newly elected councilman, 31-year-old Dan White, were soon invited to a series of televised joint interviews. Although the election was over, local news stations drew ratings by seating White and Milk together and letting them butt heads on TV. The media loved pairing the two. Milk was a progressive out liberal. White was a Catholic moderate with conservative leanings. Although they were both Democrats, they were seemingly opposites, which offered the press a ready-made narrative about their rivalry. During one interview, Milk challenged White on his earlier homophobic comments, especially White's quote about San Francisco being full of social deviates. White responded that his quote referred to drug addicts. He assured Milk and the public that he had no problem with gay people. Out of the public eye, Milk's friends criticized him for legitimizing a homophobic social conservative. But Milk believed that White could be reasoned with. He said, I'm gonna sit next to Dan every day and let him know we're not all those bad things he thinks we are. Everyone can be reached. Everyone can be educated and helped. You think some people are hopeless, not me. During their media tour, Milk and White formed a cautious friendship. What they lacked in political camaraderie, they made up for with hard-won respect and shared experiences on the press circuit. By the time they each took their oaths of office on January 9, 1978, they were comrades and allies. As city supervisor, Milk soon found his first pet issue. Poll after poll showed that the public consistently complained about the large amounts of dog poop on sidewalks and in parks. The issue was universal. People from all demographics and every neighborhood wanted something to be done about the problem. One chilly morning in early 1978, Milk spent an hour scouring San Francisco's DuBose Park. He scooped up every piece of dog poop he could find and combined it into one large pile. He finished his work before the press arrived. The media had been informed that Milk was announcing new legislation that day, but they didn't know the details yet. With a winning smile, Milk welcomed the reporters to his press conference. He stepped forward for a picture and... He stepped right into the massive poop pile he'd made earlier. Milk stared in feigned horror at his soiled shoe while reporters snapped pictures. Then, with the practiced ease of a natural showman, Milk explained how this misstep was the perfect demonstration for his new law. He would impose fines on pet owners who didn't collect their dog's feces. In the following weeks, Milk's rivals mocked him, 
suggesting that he focused on dog poop because he had nothing to offer on more substantial issues. Even his friend and ally, Mayor Moscone, complained about how Milk's dog poop bill grabbed headlines. Milk bragged to his friends that it was a positive sign that he was being criticized for his policies, not for his sexuality. Meanwhile, his public support skyrocketed. The people rejoiced that they could now walk freely on the streets. Milk once quipped to a friend, whoever can solve the dog poop problem can be elected mayor of San Francisco, even president of the United States. Since their televised debates, Milk and White had remained friends and unlikely political allies. White even broke ranks with his fellow conservative-leaning supervisors in order to support Milk's initiatives, like a gay rights bill, and saving the Pride Center, a public facility that served out citizens. In exchange for his votes, White expected Milk to repay the favor by joining him in opposition to the Youth Campus, a Catholic-run juvenile detention facility that had been proposed in White's neighborhood. White campaigned hard against the building, claiming it would bring troubled criminal youth into otherwise safe residential communities. He got into a public shouting match with one Catholic priest involved in the project, in which White cursed at the holy man. Behind closed doors at City Hall, White also pressed the other city supervisors to stand with him against the facility. One Friday evening, White asked Milk if he had his support in the coming vote. Milk reassured him, saying, Dan, you've really earned your $9,600 on this one, a reference to White's humble city supervisor salary. White took this answer as a confirmation that Milk would join him in the vote against the youth campus that Monday. Milk's support would tip the scales in White's favor, and he spent his weekend confident that he'd secured the votes he needed. When Monday morning rolled around, however, White was devastated to see Milk vote in favor of opening the youth campus. His was the tie-breaking vote, and White was defeated. Milk saw his choice as a primarily political one. The youth campus construction was popular with Milk's constituents, and he worried about the welfare of at-risk San Francisco teens who would have nowhere to go without the youth campus. But from White's perspective, Milk's vote was a personal betrayal. After the tally, he stormed out of the room. Later, White spotted another city supervisor and vented, I guess a leopard never changes its spots. For a full week after the vote, White didn't show up at City Hall. His friends and family believed he was depressed, thanks to the disappointment about the vote in addition to his money woes. Since he'd been sworn into office months earlier, White had found that his salary couldn't stretch as far as he'd originally hoped. Annually, he received $9,600, the equivalent of just under $38,000 today. Money had been tight since the start of his term, and now that White's wife had recently had a baby, he didn't know how to make ends meet. When White finally did reappear at City Hall one week later on March 20th, 1978, it was to vote on Harvey Milk's signature bill, the Gay Rights Ordinance. This legislation was designed to protect openly LGBTQ employees from discrimination and prohibited the state from firing people for their sexual orientation. When it came time for the vote, the majority voted in favor. 
but there was a single dissenter, Dan White. Prior to that day, White had assured Milk that he would support the gay rights ordinance. But now that the time came to show his support, White betrayed Milk, just as Milk had earlier betrayed him. After the ordinance passed, White gave a speech to the press in which he decried the gay rights movement. He said, this bill lets a man in a dress be a teacher. His words were shocking to his colleagues who'd never sensed such a depth of homophobia from the man. But now that he considered Milk an enemy, White vowed to stand in opposition to anything Milk believed in. On this matter, White proved to be as good as his word. He voted against every measure Milk proposed. His public statements grew increasingly homophobic, and at home, his depression grew worse and worse. White's relationship with his wife, Mary Ann, cooled to the point that White began sleeping on the couch. The usually health-conscious White took to binging on sugary snacks. His friends noticed his increasingly frequent, sullen temper tantrums. One of Milk's greatest political battles was against Prop 6, also known as the Briggs Initiative. Prop 6, if it passed, would forbid the state of California from employing any teacher who was gay or lesbian or who supported gay rights. When State Representative John Briggs presented Prop 6, the ballot measure was wildly popular. Milk publicly opposed it, but his efforts seemed like a lost cause. He didn't realistically expect to defeat the bill, but he hoped to make the vote close enough to send a message that LGBTQ people weren't going to roll over and accept discrimination. Milk challenged Briggs to a public debate and the representative agreed. They met at a suburban high school on September 6, 1978. 48-year-old Milk ensured that the live audience was packed with gay rights supporters. Television cameras broadcast the pair as they verbally sparred, trading barbs about same-sex attraction. Briggs echoed Anita Bryant's frequent assertion that because gay couples didn't have children, they sought to recruit youths. He insisted that students needed protection from teachers who would turn them gay. Melt countered, I was born of heterosexual parents. And why am I a homosexual if I'm affected by role models? I should have been a heterosexual. And no offense meant, but if teachers are going to affect you as role models, there'd be a lot of nuns running around the streets today. Milk relished the opportunity to give gay rights a public platform, but he mentally prepared for Prop 6 to inevitably pass. He worked closely with Mayor Moscone to ready the San Francisco police force for the riots and protests that were certain to follow Election Day. Votes poured in on November 7, 1978. Milk watched the news reports roll in with the results. He was shocked at the end of the day when reporters announced that Proposition 6 was defeated by a wide margin. His hard work had paid off. More than 75% of all votes cast in San Francisco were against Prop 6. The only district that didn't reject the ballot initiative was Dan White's. On November 10, 1978, 32-year-old White suddenly tendered his resignation to Mayor Moscone, citing his meager salary. White hadn't discussed his intention to quit with anyone, 
not even his wife. When Milk heard of White's resignation, he was thrilled. The city council was evenly split between liberal and conservative supervisors. Mayor Moscone, a progressive Democrat, had the authority to appoint White's replacement. He could tip the scales of power. White's constituents didn't want to let that happen. They began to call him at home, demanding that he withdraw his resignation. And days later, White asked Moscone if he could be reappointed to his former seat. Moscone reassured White that he'd work with him. Once word reached Milk, he marched directly to Moscone's office. Like Milk, Moscone was a radical progressive, but he tempered his legislation with an eye toward his popularity with more moderate voters. If Milk hoped to change Moscone's mind, he'd need to argue based on pragmatism, not ideology. Milk reminded him of the political opportunity they'd squander if White resumed his seat, and thanks largely to his pleading, Moscone agreed to think the issue over further before he made a decision. White was still waiting to hear back when he bumped into a reporter at a fundraiser. They chatted for a bit, but when the reporter asked if White was anti-gay, White noticeably cooled. He responded, Let me tell you right now, I've got a real surprise for the gay community. A real surprise. At 10.30 on the night of November 26th, just over two weeks since his resignation, White received a phone call from a news station seeking a quote on the fact that Moscone was replacing him. That was the first White heard of his rejection. Moscone never called him with a verdict. The next morning, November 27, 1978, Dan White forced open the window of a basement office at City Hall a little before 11 a.m. He climbed inside, bypassing the metal detectors that stood at the entrance. This was the only way for him to smuggle his service revolver into the building. White walked to Mayor Moscone's office, passing several friends and former co-workers in the halls. None of them thought there was anything suspicious about his presence. They figured he was there to discuss the terms of his resignation. When White entered, Moscone could see from his expression that he was upset. He offered White a drink to calm his nerves, but White, a teetotaler, declined. The two men stepped into Moscone's private back office. There, Moscone reassured White that his decision wasn't personal. But White didn't believe him. He thought of how he'd be torn apart in the press. He imagined that Moscone would lie about him and ruin his reputation. Overwhelmed by paranoia, White lifted his gun and pulled the trigger. White shot Moscone twice in the head and twice more in the body. The mayor instantly died. The sound of the gunshots resonated throughout the building. Most staffers assumed a car on the street had backfired and ignored the pops. President of the Board of Supervisors, Diane Feinstein, had been notified as soon as White arrived that morning. When she heard the gunshots, she assumed White had killed himself and ran toward Moscone's office to provide assistance. But before she could get there, White stepped out of Moscone's office and into the hallway. Surprisingly, most everyone ignored him. For a moment, he wondered where to go next. He hadn't planned past this moment. 
Then, White spotted one of Milk's aides. He remembered rumors he'd heard that Milk was the one who had convinced Moscone not to hire him back. He'd been betraying him ever since the youth campus vote. In fact, White realized that Harvey Milk was to blame for all of his problems. After reloading his 38 caliber revolver, White strode into Milk's office. Milk hadn't heard the gunshot and had no idea of the murder minutes earlier. He calmly greeted White, who asked to speak to him privately. Milk agreed, and the pair strode into White's former office. Once inside, White began to scream. He accused Milk of conspiring with Moscone to keep him off the board. And then, Milk smirked. White could only think that Milk knew how much he'd hurt him, that he was enjoying his suffering. White lifted his gun, aimed, and fired. After the first bullet struck, Milk stumbled backward. He gasped. Oh no. White continued to shoot, striking Milk five times. He collapsed to the ground, but White didn't stop firing until he was certain that he was dead. Feinstein was still en route to Moscone's office when she saw White dart out into the hallway. She shouted at him, but White didn't slow or stop. Feinstein pushed open the door that White had just run out of and found Milk sprawled on the floor. At the same moment, a city official arrived at Moscone's office for her 11 o'clock appointment. Moscone's secretary checked on the mayor to see if he was ready and found that he too was dead. While City Hall descended into chaos and panic, White calmly approached his confused aide and asked for his car keys. The aide complied and the newly minted murderer escaped without missing a step. Thanks for listening to Assassinations. We'll be back Monday. You can find more episodes of Assassinations as well as all of ParCast's other podcasts on Spotify or wherever you listen to podcasts. Several of you have asked how to help us. If you enjoy the show, the best way to help is to leave a five-star review. And don't forget to follow us on Facebook and Instagram at ParCast and Twitter at ParCast Network. We'll see you next time. Assassinations was created by Max Cutler, is a production of Cutler Media, and is part of the ParCast Network. It's produced by Max and Ron Cutler, sound designed by Russell Nash, with production assistance by Ron Shapiro and Paul Liebeskind. Additional production assistance by Maggie Admire and Freddie Beckley. This episode of Assassinations was written by Angela Jorgensen and stars Kate Leonard and Bill Thomas. 